This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 10, Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, and Cabbage Town. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you guys had a wonderful week. And before we start today, I want to talk about a meeting that I had last week with Craig from all of ITP. And in my New York accent, that's all A-L-L of ITP. If that ITP sounds weird to you, you don't live in Atlanta or you're not from Atlanta, here in Atlanta, we like to divide the city by a circular highway or Interstate 285, and it forms a nice circle around the city. And so the saying is that if you're inside, you're inside the perimeter, and if you are outside, you are outside the perimeter. So we commonly throw around the terms ITP and OTP. Now that that is explained, um, Craig is a cyclist, and if you are a cyclist or bike at all through Atlanta, if you record your miles on some kind of device, so a Garmin or whatever magical technology tool you use, there is an app he's developed that works with Strava. So you can download your miles into this app, and then when it takes your information, it will process all of the miles that you've done and tell you how many ITP roads you have been on. The goal is to ride every single road inside the perimeter, and he even has it broken out by neighborhood and then has added fun features like photo scavenger hunt type things and then leaderboards. I am doing it no justice, trust me, and it's just because I don't have a technological mind and I don't know how to explain these things, but it was really blowing me away, um, again, as a layperson that doesn't understand this stuff. Now, he has a lot of ideas and changes in the work, so if you bike now in any capacity, make sure you join the challenge. It's really cool, and what he's done in some of the choices, so if you choose, let's say, the Reynolds Town route, um, when you're inside there'll be a link to my episode, let's say on Reynolds Town, so you can know more about where you're going if that's what you want to do. What I love about this project is that Craig's real goal is just getting everyone out there seeing and exploring things that they've never seen, which is exactly what my hope is with the podcast. Sometimes when something else encourages you to maybe turn down that street you've never seen or ride out to that neighborhood that you've never been in, to me that's the magic of life. So it was it was really fun to talk with a person that also understands that magic and then wants to spread it to the rest of the world. This week my plan was to have an episode entirely on the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill and I told myself I was going to do a separate episode on Cabbage Town. But then when I started the research, I realized that the two are intrinsically linked, and you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. So instead, today I bring you kind of a dual episode, and I will try my hardest not to cram too much information into this short podcast episode. I'm going to start talking about the mill first, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. This is that large factory structure that you can see in the distance when you're at Oakland Cemetery or you're driving down to Cab Avenue. So it it really borders the train tracks there and the smokestacks rise pretty tall. So they're a very prominent feature in the skyline of the area. Again, easily seen from Oakland or even maybe the roof of Six Feet Under, but I know that almost everyone has noticed them at some point. Before telling the story of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, I always like to start with a story of the Atlanta Rolling Mill. 
you're actually getting kind of three bonus stories today. Rolling Mills in Atlanta had attempted establishment before, but it wasn't until Lewis Schofield teamed up with James Blake and they opened the Atlanta Rolling Mill in 1858. Now, it was located on what's now part of Oakland Cemetery, most of the site of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, and the Cabbage Town neighborhood as well. Within months, an investor was added, and the business was officially operating as Blake, Schofield, and Markham. Now, very fun facts is in this research, I went down a big rabbit hole about Schofield and Markham. They were both northern-born and suspected unionists. So uh, Markham was actually almost killed in a knife attack because of his suspected northern sympathizer ways. He ended up moving back to Connecticut during the war and then returned when the war was over. I also just learned that he was portrayed in this year's Capturing the Spirits of Oakland, which I'm going to talk about at the end, but um, it was awesome that I had kind of learned about him and then learned a little bit more later. The Rolling Mills specialty was re-rolling old railroad tracks, but then once the Civil War started, they also produced a lot for the Confederate forces, mostly um, cladding the Navy ships, but, you know, other stuff as well that they needed. The mill was bought out in 1863, and they changed the name to the Confederate Rolling Mill. And now here's where the story gets interesting. Just before midnight on a September night in 1864, now keep in mind, this is the last year of the Civil War when Atlanta would finally see battle. Confederate forces, under the orders of General Hood, set fire to 81 train cars packed with ammunition. Now at this stage in the war, the South knew it was losing. And the whole idea is to prevent Sherman and the Union troops from accessing this stuff. So if you can imagine, when 81 ammunition cars explode, they take out everything within a quarter of a mile. The blast is so loud that Sherman, who I think was in Kennesaw at the time, um, can hear it. So this sort of lays out this nice, flattened um, area that would then come into play about 25 years later. Fast forward more than two decades later, and that land would become the perfect site for the building that you can still see today, the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill. And that story starts with a man named Jacob Elsis. Elsis was a German-Jewish immigrant, left Germany at the age of 18 to join with relatives in Cincinnati, Ohio. When he was in America, he was drafted into the Union Army, and then his unit was stationed in Cartersville, Georgia. So after the war, Jacob just stayed around. Um, He opened a general store um, and established a little bit of a business there. He made his way to Atlanta in 1868, and just two years later, he's running three different businesses. One was a rag, paper, and hide trade, which was basically selling scrap materials or reselling scrap materials. Um, Then a store selling jeans and dry goods, and then a venture producing cotton and paper bags for flour, grain, etc., This is all at the ripe old age of 26, so if you feel bad about yourself, feel a little bit worse now. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, he marries Clara, and they have eight children, six boys, two girls. Soon, he would join forces with Isaac May, who was a fellow German Jew, and the company would be called Elsis, May, and Company. And the company was successful, but the partnership dissolved in 1874, and Elsis and May went on to form the Southern Bag Factory. By early 1876, the Parters chartered the Fulton Cotton Spinning Company, which was soon to be one of the two earliest cotton mills in Atlanta. 
1881 was an important year in Atlanta because we hosted the International Cotton Exhibition. This was the first industrial exhibition held in the South. This was important because after the war, the South was really reestablishing itself. If you've heard the term kind of the new South, it was sort of like, well, okay, what are we going to be? How are we going to define ourselves? It was a big deal to have this exhibition happen. And this is the same year that Elsas and his partner purchased this eight-acre old historic war ruin site of the Atlanta Rolling Mill. And the intention was to build their factory there. The Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill opened in 1881 with 12,000 spindles and 450 looms. The very first building built was a bleachery, which is now a pool, but I'll get to that part later. And within a few years, the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill Company had outgrown the capacity of its existing building. So they opened a second mill on the site, 1895, with 40,000 spindles. By 1889, they were booming. They added um, a picking room, engine room, cotton warehouse, lumber shed, water tank, well. It was really like a self-contained little city. They added a third mill that added 50,000 additional spindles by, I think this was 1907. Now, shortly thereafter, they just started opening in other cities. So they had New Orleans, St. Louis, New York, Dallas, and then in later years, even more cities that I just can't even remember what they are. Jacob Elsus was a big name in Atlanta elite. So up there with the other, you know, important white guys of the time, um, he was instrumental actually in the creation of Georgia Tech. So in a meeting of Atlanta businessmen, he explained to them the importance of establishing a technical school in the South because there were none. So his whole thing is like, listen, we want to become this big player. We're having this exhibition, but we have nowhere to send our children. He himself was planning to send his son to MIT And um, I guess he just convinced everybody because the story goes that every man in the room pledged $1,000 each and initially Georgia Tech was born. What's interesting is that Jacob Elsus being Jewish was definitely an issue. So even though he was up there with the elite white men of Atlanta, he had problems in a sense fitting in because of his religion. So he was never asked to be on the board of directors at Georgia Tech, even though he was really the guy that created it. Um, He also lived with other prominent Jews south of Atlanta instead of having the big homes on Petrie Street like other white elites. And there's actually a term I learned called sort of cracking Petrie Street it was a thing that Jews couldn't do. So they would try, but they couldn't get past that line. Little bonus fact is that Jacob Elsa's son, Oscar, was one of the first Jews to crack Petrie Street um, when he got an apartment at the new Ponce de Leon condos, which are right across from the Fox Theater. Now, as common practice in the U.S. at the time, when you built a factory, you built housing. And especially in the area we're talking about. So in 1881, Cabbage Town neighborhood, that was just a sparsely populated, far away from the city. And Elsa's learned some lessons from other players in Atlanta. Kimball, who owned the Atlanta Cotton Factory, which was downtown, often suffered labor shortages because of where he was located and he had a hard time keeping people working. So Elsa's um, built the factory and then he really got started building the housing. For the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, white workers were recruited from North Georgia and the Appalachian region. There were actually also workers from South Georgia as well, um, but really these were poor sharecroppers. The promise of steady wages, basic health care, guaranteed housing was a really attractive proposition. 
The very first houses in Cabbage Town were built in 1881 when the factory opened. And sadly, none of those really early ones still exist, but there is still housing stock from 1886 to about 1892, and those are mostly along Reinhardt Street. When you walk around Cabbage Town now, you're mostly going to see the shotgun-style houses, and some of the bigger cottages were built for um, larger kind of mill worker families. So interesting little side story about the term shotgun house Most historians believe that the style of home originated in New Orleans. You do see them a lot there in the 1880s. But there are some people discovering that this early housing style may date back to even Africa or Haiti. Now, the name comes from the idea that if you open up the front door, you shoot a gun, a bullet is going to travel all the way through the house, out the back door without touching anything. That's how they were. It's kind of like you had to go from one room to another to another. But the design was helpful in cities because they were able to get as many units as possible into narrow city lots. Also, the design really allowed good airflow. So think about hot Georgia summers, no air conditioning. Um, This was helpful. I also learned that the earliest use, the earliest known use of the term shotgun house was actually in the AJC. So our Local newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, 1903, there's an advertisement talking about houses down on Simpson Street, which is now Ivan Allen Jr. Drive, that were renting for $12 a month. So the mill built this neighborhood of shotgun houses, and they maintained the whole neighborhood. They would mow the lawns, they would take out your garbage, they'd provide libraries, daycare for workers. They wanted this to be completely self-sufficient. What this did was it grew a really tight-knit, semi-isolated community whose lives were anchored to the mill. So everyone here worked at the mill, men, women, and children. If that sounds crazy, remember that we have yet to pass child labor laws. Workers under the age of 16 actually comprised about 12% of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill labor force, which was actually lower than the general standard or other factories like it. Now, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which would ban child labor, was not even passed till 1938. Also keep in mind, lots of women working um, after the Civil War, I mean, like I've talked about this before, but so many white men died. So you have a lot of war widows that actually have to go back to work as well. Having a large, low-paid labor force had its issues, and one of these were strikes. There is a long history of strikes at the mill. Um, The very first one was about 1885. You had 50 weavers go on strike over a wage dispute, and about 150 plant workers were affected. Now, they broke some machinery, which I read was very rare, because most of the labor unions instructed you not to destroy any property. This was a little more complicated, but it was a very short strike. It was only two days long, and workers were unsuccessful. A five-day strike occurred in 1897. Jacob Elsis hired the first black women to work on the floor, and white mill workers, when they arrived to work and found out that the black women had already entered, they basically walked off the job, protesting the hire. And here's where it's important to understand what was going on in the rest of the city you know, history, no event happens in a vacuum. And so at that time in Atlanta, the population is booming. The African-American population in Atlanta has grown substantially. And you have low-income black men competing for jobs with low-income white men. So there was tension. And then at the same time of this strike, President McKinley had just appointed 
Henry Rucker as IRS agent for the state of Georgia. Now, Henry was black. So we have the first African-American IRS agent for the state of Georgia in 1897. And so there was a lot of anger about that. And it sort of came out in this incident at the factory. Now, the interesting part is that the strike worked in the sense that it pressured Elsa's enough that he fired the black women and then the white workers went back to work. In 1914, a year-long strike began. Now, this is kind of the famous one. There are two or three books written about it. I'm going to put a link to one of them for you if you want to read more about it. But the main idea was that the workers in the plant wanted to join the United Textile Workers Union, but they also wanted more money. They wanted to go down to just a 54-hour work week. If you can imagine, that was a bonus. And they weren't really fans of the child labor. So that was kind of a wave happening throughout the country. Now, this is another case where you have to see what was going on in the city. So this was the time of Leo Frank, and I am coming up with an episode very soon about that. But Leo Frank was a Jewish factory owner convicted of murdering a young girl. I don't want to give you too much, but but, um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism happening in Atlanta at the time because of this. And interestingly enough, Cabbage Town was kind of the epicenter of the anti-Frank movement. There was a musician in Cabbage Town, his name was Fiddlin' John Carson, who wrote a song called The Ballad of Mary Fagan that was very popular and sung throughout the city during these times. In 1934, there's a nationwide textile workers strike, so workers in Atlanta from all the mills in the city joined together. This was actually such a big deal, the governor at the time declared martial law. Now, even though we had these labor disputes and worker unrest, the mill was very successful and very productive. It stayed open until 1977, almost 100 years. And then the property was left vacant until the mid-90s when it was redeveloped into loft apartments. So like I said earlier, when I said the bleachery is the pool, um, if you go there now, it's just, it's been beautifully done. At least I think so. So they took the old building, they've reinforced it. It's now the pool. They've kept as much as they can. So old factory equipment is kind of dotted throughout the landscape. Um, They have kept the old fire doors and you can buy a condo or rent um, some lofts as well. And if anyone out there is a fan of the Netflix new version of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, not to go too far off tangent here, but um, the Fab Five loft is there. So when you watch those episodes, they are showing you scenes from the the stacks. And now the most important question of the night is why do they call it Cabbage Town? So I get this all the time on the tours and the general consensus is that there's really no right story. Instead, there's a few different ones. So I'm going to tell you three of the most popular and maybe you can decide which one you like best. One of them is that there were often peddlers that would ride through the neighborhood selling um produce or food items and they found out or they discovered that cabbage sold better than anything else. So these food peddlers would eventually take entire loads of nothing but cabbage, thus beginning the name of Cabbage Town. The second story is probably the most widely accepted, um, but it is that the neighborhood is made up of Appalachian residents who are mostly Scottish-Irish descent they would not only grow cabbages in their front yard, but they would cook them all the time. 
for dinner. So if you have ever smelled cooked cabbage, it's very distinct. And the story is that that smell of cooked cabbage would kind of wave from the neighborhood and people outside would call it Cabbage Town in a derogatory type of way, but it became a symbol of pride for the people in the neighborhood. My favorite story, probably the least believable, but the coolest, is that a train, so there's kind of two. One is that a train carrying a load of cabbages derailed next to the mill, and the poor residents ran to grab them and cook them. Um, it also, the story changes a little bit, where it's like a Ford Model T took a sharp turn in Cabbage Town and flipped over, spilling a bunch of cabbages, and all the residents ran out and grabbed them. So I don't believe that one, but I like the visual. The homes in the neighborhood were sold back to factory workers by about the late 50s. And so that area maintained that kind of close-knit, isolated feel that it had from the beginning. But it did start to change by the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, there was a little bit of gentrification. But today, it's also just a totally different neighborhood as well. I mean, the belt line's right there. Home prices are a little insane. But the difference with Cabbage Town in comparison to Reynolds Town, and this is what I want to express to you guys, is Cabbage Town has really strict covenants regarding the homes. So you cannot build the glass cubes there. And actually, if you build a new home today, let's say you find a vacant lot, it has to match a house on the block. So it maintains that character and it maintains that sense of community. If this doesn't sell you on the historic preservation, think about this. In the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you'll be able to walk through Cabbage Town and you're still understanding the history. So there's that connection. You're like, oh, wow, man, like all these people used to live in these houses and they're so small and they had no plumbing or at least just questions. Because I have a lot of people who ride through Cabbage Town and they love it and they have lots of questions about it. And that's what's lost when you allow a neighborhood to be completely, in a sense, torn down and then built new with whatever you want. But let me get off my soapbox. So that's all I got to say about that. The good part about the neighborhood of Cabbage Town is that it is getting help continuing its story from the great-great-grandson, I think is correct, of Jacob Elsis. So his name is also Jacob Elsis. And him and his wife, Nina, live in the stacks, which the stacks is what they call the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill um, lofts now. And he and his wife have a small museum at the edge of Cabbage Town on Gaskell Street. It's called The Patchworks. And what's great is they have a GoFundMe page that's raising money to help them keep the museum open. But there's artifacts, stories, histories of the mill, of the people of Cabbage Town. So I want to put a link for you guys so you can check that out. And I want to end this episode with a little tie to Oakland Cemetery. So Oakland is right across the street, and it is the burial of the people I've been talking about today. Actually, Markham from the Atlanta Rolling Mill, he has a pretty nice little headstone there. Like I said, he was featured on this year's Capturing the Spirits tour. I'm also assuming, and I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that the poor workers of the mill, that when they died, maybe they were being buried in the pauper section, which is closest to Cabbage Town. But Jacob Elsis's mausoleum is at Oakland. His mausoleum's really big. It's over in the Jewish section. And the front door actually faces Memorial Drive. So it faces six feet under. But I heard the story this weekend. And the back of his mausoleum is a small window that, so the story goes, lets him watch over the mill and the neighborhood, even in death. 
that is a really unique story. And again, I like going to cemeteries because it wraps up the whole story for me. So there you have it, the story of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill and the Cabbage Town neighborhood. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends and family. If you go check out Cabbage Town this weekend or sometime in the future, take some pictures and make sure you tag hashtag Archive Atlanta. I also forgot, but I'm going to put a link to the All of ITP site in the show notes for this as well. So check that out. And I will talk to you guys next week. Have a great weekend.